and welcome to episode 108 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, strategies, and streamers for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, it's good to see you. There's a lot of content and a lot of, a lot of co-hosts this week, so I don't even want to waste time on me. Good, because I'm excited to introduce our next co-host. It's the godfather, Dave Harbarger. So many cards. Let's roll that beautiful bean footage. And once again, making his triumphant return, it's Evart Mukau, a.k.a. Aspiring Spike. <laughs> now, we went over this in the pre-show meeting, Stan. I'm going to need to ask you to do that again. And once again, making his triumphant return, it's Everett Mohan, a.k.a. Aspiring Spike. Nailed it. Thanks for having me back, guys. Always good to be on. Nice to see it's you again. It's been too long. It has been too long. It has been too long. We kept running into some scheduling issues, and you know the holidays are challenging for everybody. Yeah. And honestly, this is the best time to have you on. Spoil- this is like, the think, your third spoiler episode. Yeah, I think so, too. Maybe this will just be a recurring theme. You've been typecast. your takes. <laughs> and I just want to be super clear. You're doing us a favor by being by being on. You do not have to thank us. We thank no, you. No, it's really nice. People ask me about my thoughts on spoilers all the time, and I can just link them to the podcast instead of uh, having to repeat myself over and over on stream. <laughs> well, you know, we do have greatly annotated show notes for every episode, so we can tell you the minute whenever it talks about a specific card. So keep an eye out for that in Reddit, everybody. And uh, that's where it is. Hey, Everett, did you get anything good for Christmas or Hanukkah? I got an espresso maker. Um, that was pretty good. I've been using it Sweet. like six times a day. <laughs> and nice. uh, I got a, a play mat that has my dog's name on it. I've been using it as a mouse pad. Am I the only one on the show now that doesn't have an espresso machine? Sounds that way. Oh, it's man. pretty good. It's pretty good. And I think you are the coffeeist of, I mean, I don't know how deep you are into coffee, Everett. Stan and I are, are medium. But Shane is one of those obsessive detail-y guys who's super into it for like 20 years. How, how deep do you go? Uh, I like coffee. I don't know. I definitely am a casual. Uh, casual spike. Casual spike. Casual, yeah, casual, casual, spike. casual barista. Yeah, yeah, I like it though. It's good. On this week's episode, we're breaking down the historic MPL League weekend, a tournament that will go down in history, which also focused on the historic format. Then we pick up where we left off last week with our final installment of Kaldheim Picks to Click. Will Everett open our eyes to the amazing tech that we've overlooked in the set? Yes. Or will he confirm our suspicions that Coldland is shaping up to be a sleeper? I'll listen more on today's dive down, but first, some housekeeping. Shout out to new patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Christopher H., John K., and Cam K., no relation. Also, thank you to a couple new reviews. Oh, yes, new reviews. We got iTunes user 812. I'm assuming they were born on August 12th. No, I think that they were the 812th iTunes user. Also impressive. I think they're from the ancient Roman Empire of 812. And Claft Punk also left us a review. So thank you to you both. All right, let's get some plugs out of the way. Uh, first off, Patreon. You've heard us talk about it. Uh, you've heard us talk about the awesome Dive Down Nation community. If you would like to help support the show, get involved in the Dive Down Nation, meet other citizens, head on over to patreon.com slash the dive down. Uh, buck a week is all it takes to get uh, immediate pretty immediate access to the super secret slack server uh, go up from there gets various tiers of swag even at the highest tier you can 
help us select uh, an episode topic of your choice. You kind of design the episode with us every six months. That's kind of the most fun and perk for, I think, both of us. So anyway, if you want to help us keep going and uh, make it make our community even more awesome, patreon.com slash the dive down. And if you'd like to support us while playing magic on magic online, you can check out manatraders.com the best rental service for magic cards on magic online. You know, we love it. You know, we've been using it forever. All 108 episodes have been realistically brought to you by manatraders.com in some form or another. Uh, so if you haven't signed up for it yet, check them out and use code to the dive down for 15% off your first three months of rentals. Finally, if you would like to support us without having to do much on your own. And if you play arena, you can download the great analytics app untapped from untapped.gg. Um, you can check out our affiliate link at untapped.thedivedown.com and just download it. Download it, install it, and we'll get a little a little something in our tip jar. Thanks, guys. With all that out of the way, let's actually jump right back to Shane, who is on the news desk this week. I forgot. I forgot that I was. All right, Shane. We, we got Everett here. I know. We got Everett here. We got spoilers. Um, well, I must, I'm mildly curious if, Everett, have you touched Historic since the uh, Players' Championship? Uh, nope. You can say no, it, it, it wasn't the Players' Championship. It was the um, Zendikar <laughs> Rising Championship. That's a, it's a different tournament. But uh, no, I really liked Historic. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, it's not like really the focus of my, my stream. Uh, and I also don't really have... Yeah, it. Arena would be too new, too contemporary, too fluid. I did. I did stream a decent amount of it when I was prepping for the for the PT, and I you know, I would play it some more if I had an arena collection. But you know, arena collections are either really expensive or really time consuming, and at least where I'm at right now, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense to invest in one. Do you feel discouraged to brew in historic because of the arena economy? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I I I, I guess I guess yes, because I just like I don't play historic due to my lack of access to the cards but if i was interested in getting into historic i i don't think that the arena economy would necessarily hold me back so much i i'd also say this is someone who doesn't have a firm grasp on exactly how the arena economy works so i may i may be speaking out of my element a bit here money goes in and nothing comes out <laughs> yeah that's that's the way the economy the economy works by you throwing money at it until you crank the lever enough that the gotcha machine spits out the wild card you want that that seems less than ideal is that a hot take is that uh no i mean it's 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 really i mean it's you can you know when you're going to get something in terms of like the wilds like the little wild wheel it spins around but largely you can't really expect to like crack the cards you want too much so like you you know how much it costs it's just like kind of a and anything over that is just kind of gravy all right so there was a big tournament this weekend and as people know we've been enjoying historic quite a bit lately yes exactly we i that's 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 my primary way of playing magic right now um so the MPL weekend event was historic we got to see what deck some of the best players in the world brought uh how they iterated on and some established archetypes and how well those archetypes and players performed brief thing on the mpl the mpl to me at least even after all this time is like the sort of weird black box of magic tournament happenings but after i looked again on how it's like actually working i realized it's not really that complex and i thought maybe listeners would be interested in kind of the the brief rundown on what the MPL and rivals actually are. So there's 24 MPL players. They play against each other in these recurring tournaments called League Weekends. 
and each match win, it, you get a point towards your league standings. And after seven of these league weekends, the final standings place these players into various tiers of battle. Like either they stay in the MPL, they have to go into like a gauntlet thing or the rivals gauntlet. Uh, and so if you do poorly, you're at more risk. You have like a chance to go down into rivals. If you do well, you don't have to do much and you're kind of safe. And meanwhile, the 46 rivals players are playing against each other for their and their final league standings put them in a competition to make like the MPL as well, or I think fall out of rivals contention. And the goal of all of this, of course, is either to maintain standing in the MPL, make the MPL out of rivals and get some money. So it's not that challenging. It's just a matter of like paying attention to it is sometimes challenging because you don't always know when it's going on. Um, but you know, you know a lot of these players by name, whether they're in the MPL or rivals, and they are some of the best players in the world. So let's look at this weekend and to give us some view into what's happening in historic. And first, we'll look at the overall metagame, then at the top finishing decks from the weekend, and then some overall performance data to see what's performing well in historic right now. I really would love to dig into some of the tweaks that went into some of these decks, but because it's a spoiler app and because we have Spike on, I don't want to spend the time on that. So maybe soon. Uh, I also want to shout out Twitter user JPBall5 or Ball Lightning PhD for their stats collection on the MPL, which was essential for me doing uh, this work in the breakdown. So overall metagame. Uh, the MPL and Rivals play separately, so we can look at the metas independently of one another. But here's the secret. It doesn't matter because it's the same. Um, MPL. Uh, eight people or 33% on Sultai mid-range. Six percent or 25... Excuse me. Six people or 25% on Jun Sack. Five people or 20.8% on Gruel Aggro. We got one-ofs of four-color mid-range goblins, mono-black, mono-green, and teamer ramp. So, most people, Sultai mid-range, Jun Sack, Gruel Aggro. In rivals, much of the same. 41.3% on Sultai mid 21.7% on Jund Sack, 13% on Gruel. Couple two ofs like four color mid range, Rakdo Sack, and then one ofs of Goblins, Kethis Combo, a couple different red decks, Orzov Oras, Selesnia Aggro, and the Simic Paradox Engine deck. Yeah, interesting. The top three decks of each one of these metas was the same. <laughs> yep, basically. Nice yeah, like Sultai, Jund Sack, and Gruel Aggro were about 76% of the combined meta game it's almost like a standard meta when you look at it like that right where you get this real concentration of like three good decks and then there's some roguey kind of stuff but yeah i mean like basically it's like 38.6 percent sultai 21.4 percent jun sack and 15.7 percent gruel so before we move on about and talk about these big three a little bit any general thoughts about what's showing up here or perhaps not showing up here in this uh, MPL Rivals weekend? Well, I, I would personally say that I'm not very surprised by these numbers based on what kind of tournament this is. In my experience, the smaller the tournament, the less diverse the metagame, and not not only the less diverse the metagame, the less people are willing to take risks on their deck selection. You know, in my opinion, uh, you know, there is a there is a very high risk, high reward uh, thing that goes on with your deck selection. If you can figure out something that is great against the field, then 
you are getting a lot of percentage points towards your tournament success. And these small tournaments have always kind of kind of puzzled me because I think that the metagames are incredibly predictable. Like, you know, if you compare these to, like, worlds, which these are kind of, like, worlds in league play, uh, there, there, were like, there were, like, two modern worlds tournaments uh, a few years ago where almost, like, the, like, more than half the field played Abzan midrange. Like, an absurd people played Abzan midrange. And they played Abzan because it was a super safe choice. But nobody in the tournament had the read to metagame and play mono green Tron, which has always really, always really stumbled, you know, you know re- really, really confused me. But I, mean, I, I get it, you know, like I, I have to imagine that this league is the most anxiety inducing tournament to be in in your entire life, where if you can just barely, if you can squeak into to in the NPL, all of a sudden you, it, it, the difference between be, being the top rivals player and the bottom of the NPL is it's insane how drastically different that is and like the idea of registering a tournament a deck list that is taking risks is has got to be the most anxiety inducing thing ever which is i think why we see such a predictable safe metagame of like you have like the three tier one decks in historic um you know like with and i i I, like a big part of this is like sultai and jund i think are both pretty geared to beat goblins and that was my experience in testing for uh, the PT, and I think that's like why you're not seeing people play goblins. And I think every, I think that most of the MPL players understand this metagame, and instead of trying to capitalize on it, they have picked one of the decks and they just try to master it and get the best, the most uh, percentage points they can. Yeah, for sure. And since you start, you know, you t- started talking about the decks a little bit, so let's move on into talking about those. And so first, let's hit on Sultai. And I think Sultai is just kind of doing what Sultai is was doing, and that's maintaining its status as like the mid-range control Uro pile in Historic. And I think it's just one of those high-level player decks that people gravitate towards because it either they feel like it does or it actually does gives them agency to play better than their opponents. And I do think it's a tweakable deck, right? Like you can tune it for an expected meta. Like if if you want to tune for a mirror breaker or tech choices that are better in that smaller field, like Everett mentioned, like if you're like, I'm worried more about Gruul than I'm about goblins. I can run a different kind of sweeper or I can run, you know, a different kind of removal suite or, you know, even maybe different creature tech if I want to. Yeah, Shane, to your point about how tweakable this deck is, once upon a time, I felt like Goblins was favored against Sultai, and that has completely reversed. And I think the deck has adjusted in such a way with their choice of sweepers and main deck as well as sideboard removal and other forms of interaction, really, that I think Goblins is no longer getting easy wins from their Sultai matches, and it's become, in fact, quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, Jun Sack. This kind of appears in this tournament, at least, through the Sack deck of choice right now. Like, one thing I was seeing uh paulo vito Rosa say is that sack wants coco to dig for those particularly important creatures that makes your plan work yeah i mean it's interesting you know i think that pv was on sack at the zendikar rising championship if i remember right and he was on gruel this and he was weekend. on gruel this week so it's interesting to see him kind of switch from one deck to another but definitely he's long been an advocate of jund over rakdos for that reason um i've seen You've heard equal people kind of say that Sack doesn't need Coco. And so it's always interesting to see how this goes back and forth between those two points. And uh, we'll see what happens. 
mean, after the played, set comes you out. Played, you played Rakdosec a few, yeah. a, a good amount, Dave. Like, have you found yourself just being like, man, I really wish I could dig six cards deep to find that Mayhem Devil? I mean, here's, here, yeah, I it does need some kind of card advantage engine. And so I've kind of favored the builds that have the simpler mana base and Bomat Courier over playing the builds that kind of eschew Bomat Courier and have Coco instead. Um so I I think that either deck can work fine on its own. You're definitely less susceptible to stumbles and things like that because the mana in this deck is a little bit weird, like a number of decks in Historic are. They feel like they would have really good mana, and then sometimes you have awkwardness because of the way the pips line up. But um, I think we're just going to keep seeing this. Sack is just one of the best engines in the format. It's just going to keep being that. Yeah. All right, and finally, the last of the big three is Gruel Aggro. And I have to say, I'm personally a bit surprised but not really to see gruel sort of make the leap into the true tier one of at least the tournament meta here because you know that i think gruel's really good i've been playing gruel for maybe six weeks now or something like that four weeks as my primary historic deck sort of um the deck's really good at what it does which is getting the opponent's life total to zero and it also outclasses many other creature decks with the ramp or large bodies or large hasty bodies and access to Ember Cleave. And then it, you get sideboard options in green and red, which is appealing over something like a mono red deck. And there are, of course, people making some interesting tweaks on Gruel this weekend. And I'm curious what you guys think. Like, why do you think Gruel is suddenly the aggressive deck du jour so it's not the engine deck of sack it's not the controlling mid-ranging deck mid-ranging deck of sultai it's just the new it's the the new tier one aggro deck i mean here's the thing goblins is dead according to stan and according to some people they're not picking it up and nobody at this level of play wants to play auras and so when auras is not there gruel has a much better chance to fight i think because I don't think the Gruel versus Aura's matchup is good at all. It's terrible. Yeah. Real terrible. So it leaves a huge space in this metagame here. I think when, when for whatever reason, the pros don't want to play really either variant of Aura's, which notably, at least according to untapped data, is towards the top of the metagame as far as when percentage goes on the ladder anyway. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk more about that later on for sure. I think part of what so. has contributed to Gruel's success is also that it is, I think like slightly if not significantly favor two goblins and that is just consistently faster and can really punish the goblins deck when it whiffs and i also i mean this is kind of like a, a hanging question for me whether the changes that sultai made to combat goblins especially with regard to the type of sweepers it runs now whether or not that's something that created an opportunity for gruel to get under the control deck yeah, that's a good question. I mean, in my personal experience, matching up versus Sultai, I've had better than 50% luck, but that's kind of, you know, neither here nor there. It's like, I mean, the sample size is significant, but not crazy. I've always felt like the Sultai matchup is okay, and I always felt bad against Goblins, because I felt like Goblins could turn the corner and just go wider than me, uh, because they have blockers that they could sacrifice, or they have they have a lot of ways to to stop Gruel. But again, like you said, Stan, I think that your experience is like Gruel is pretty good against you when you play Goblins. So I think that is a little bit of like feels uh, versus stats type thing. But I think that you're right, which is like Gruel has an opportunity with the way that it's naturally sort of good against Sultai. I think it's naturally pretty not so good against Sack. 
And I think that it beats up on every other creature deck because it just outclasses what they're trying to do. Um, so what I want to do is quickly, I think we can just jump down. I, we don't really need to talk about kind of the individual best performers. They are names, you know, <laughs> like they're like, they just the name of people in the NPL. I, I know they're in the NPL for a reason, but it's like everyone. It's like, well, I wouldn't want to play them. I wouldn't want to play them. I don't want to play them. <laughs> I think um, I could challenge Reed Duke. Yeah, I mean, you could challenge What's him. that guy done? All right, but what I want to do is kind of talk about what do you think about this meta? Like, right, we've got two decks in maybe 2.5 in Rivals. Like, Rivals, the top the top performers were all on Junsack or Sultai mid. In MPL, we had all three kind of at the top performing list. Is this a three-deck format, or like you said, ever? Is it just like these are the three decks that people feel safe taking into a tournament like this? And they're like, even though I think Auras is a really good deck, I don't think it's like the right choice here for some reason. Uh, it is my opinion that tournaments like this are poor indicators of overall metagames. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- th- this is a metagame. This is the MPL metagame. And like it is good to analyze, especially for those who are getting to play in it. But for those of you grinding the arena ladder on Mythic, this is not going to be indicative of um, what your experience is going to be like, especially because a lot of these lists are even tuned for like this kind of rock, paper, scissors format, you know, these three, these three decks. And so I, um, I wouldn't read too much into it. Uh, These kind of tournaments have always looked like this to me. And um, I think understanding what these tournaments are, are like is really good if you ever qualify for one. Um, but as as someone who is kind of looking out from the outside, I would just recommend to not read too heavily into these like really small, high level tournaments. Yeah. And so the biggest thing to take away from that, whatever it's saying too, I think is if you pick up a deck list from this and you think you're going to like run it into the ladder, just take a look at some of the weird choices that they might have made to make sure that you don't burn wild cards on things that were specifically chosen just to be good against Jund or good against Sultai for some reason. Just if there's cards that feel like they're non-standard in here, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to add them to your deck without some thought, you know? The other thing that was super interesting to me about this metagame is, you know, we have a table here of the win rates that we got from the at MTG data. Yeah. Which is a really good Twitter account. Another quality Twitter account. It's really interesting because if you look at the win rate versus metagame among all of the decks listed here, um, which includes six decks, uh, seven decks, plus a category for other so it's Sultai midrange john gruel aggro four color midrange goblins racto sacrifice and mono red aggro the only decks that have quote-unquote positive win rates against the metagame are john sacrifice and gruel aggro everything else is less than 50 percent yeah it's funny like whenever it said the rock paper scissors uh triumvirate it's like Sultai midrange is the rock that beats up on like hand grenade <laughs> and like hand grenade is like everything else yeah. like the other like jund and gruel uh, beat up on Sultai, at least in this tournament. Um, but Sultai just handles everything else pretty handily. And that's why someone perhaps might choose it or just because it's like, oh, I'm, I'm 50% or against, you know, Junsak or, you know, Gruel Aggro. It's actually not the case. Those are just made up numbers, but you get the idea. So like Dave was saying, I think let's look quickly and how these decks actually did perform. Like Sultai Midrange had a very Sultai Midrange-esque win rate of 47%, and it had really horrid matchups against Junsak, which beat it nearly 70% of the time. 
and gruel aggro which uh beat salty about 56 percent of the time but like i said salty cleaned up against the rest of the field goblins mono red four color mid-range the other category all had losing records against it and jun sack was just awesome this weekend like a 64.5 percent win, win rate in non-mirrors no losing matchups wow that's amazing line yeah not even four color mid-range but again there's only four players on four color and i think uh stan sifka mentioned that in his tweet he was like we we guessed we got lucky slash guessed right that there was not a lot of four color out there so sack did particularly well um it just ate salt eye alive like i mentioned earlier and gruel was was solid gruel was kind of like what i expected which was like 56 percent it's only below 50 percent matchup was john sack and that's only 48 and everything else looked pretty bad, like 43% or lower win rates for the 17 people who weren't on those big three decks across both uh, ladders. And it might be a little bit misleading, like the other category might have had one or two outliers, but I don't think so because it would have brought their win percentage up a little bit. It doesn't seem like anything in that other category was particularly successful. Um, but like Dave was uh, referring to and Everett is like... The, the actual ladder experience and what on tap data reveals is like some slightly different information. Like, you know, salt time mid range is like 58% on untapped and high ladder. Mono red goblins is 58%. Uh, Obzon counters is a deck that's like 57%. Orzov auras is in the low 60s. You know, Gruel aggro and Gensack, of course, you know, are performing quite well there too. But that's a lot of good decks that we're seeing either perform poorly or not perform at all because they weren't there. Is this something that's like, you know, are these are untapped players sort of skewing the data because like they're maybe slightly better than average and they're collecting data and whatever they're playing is like 53% or is there just like enough off meta stuff on the ladder that like these tuned decks beat those decks more often or is it just kind of like there's just two different worlds. There's a tournament world and the ladder world. I think it's there's like a combination of all of those things. Like there's no one thing to look to, um, uh, you know. And I, I would say that you know, it's definitely true that that the tournament world and the ladder world are drastically different. Especially because a lot of these top players they work together, they share ideas, and they kind of can come to a consensus as the team what the best deck is and like what the best strategy is for the tournament. And uh, I think that's a big part of the reason why why you see people not taking risks, not really trying to innovate with crazy archetypes to try to beat the tier one decks. I think you you will usually see people just trying to play what they believe is the best deck rather than playing something a bit off the wall like the counters deck or the auras deck. But there there is a lot of strength in playing something that's less common and has good matchups against the top decks. And um, I think that's just something to to try to take to heart as kind of a level up moment for a lot of players trying to innovate in the metagame. Yeah. Hey, MPL players, if you're listening, Everett says you should try something crazier. <laughs> Play auras. Dave's good at it. I do. I, I, I've, I've always, I, I know, I know I, this like sounds, you know, maybe super obvious from the outside world as, you know, someone who's, you know, never played a world's tournament, but every time I see a world's or a tournament like this, I just I I do feel like there's room for innovation and taking risks that can really really pay off in a really stale and not diverse metagame. Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. I think it just continues to prove that tournament magic and casual spike magic, like high level tournament magic and the the magic that we play is different. You know what I mean? Like it's it's always going to be a little different. 
Speaking of experimentation and innovation, every once in a while, while I'm trying to ladder in historic, and this is like at the platinum and diamond levels, I will encounter weird historic versions of Everett's Jeskai Bloodsun Lotus Field deck. Oh, yeah. Oh, did yeah. you did you know it's spilled over? You know, I, I did a lot of work on that list in, in modern, but I feel like Holy Diva is the historic Lotus Field. Uh, you know, at the top of the mountain, the guru who's leading all of her disciples. Oh, she's moved on to stuff now. She's playing like Niv-Mizzet Parun these days. Oh, I know. I know she's really evolved. Um, yeah. <laughs> nice. I, I was going to say we should shout out Holy Diva anyway, just because excellent Twitter follow excellent player and also someone who pointed out about a week ago had a great thread about how sultai is bad <laughs> in historic <laughs> and how people shouldn't shouldn't be playing it and at least as far as this mpl meta went like the data bared bore this out and actually her tweet about pointing out that that came to pass is how i found the yeah. the uh, table from mtg data so yeah shout out to a great player there for sure i think uh she's also been high on gruel recently too so what up all right, since we have a lot of cards to talk about, uh, let's head on out of here. Keep playing Historic. Keep playing what you like. Uh, arena's for fun, you know? And um, we'll be back for our second volume of Kaldheim Spoilers. Stay with us. And we're back. So at the time of recording, we now have the full set spoiled, which is very exciting. Did it feel like it took like two and a half weeks? Like, why did it take so long? It felt like it took six weeks, to be honest, to get it. From the first preview, I was like, all right, we're going to do the preview up so soon. And then it was like, oh, we got to wait a month to do preview apps. So, well, now great. we have all the cards. And what we're going to do today is cover some of the cards that we either weren't aware of or didn't have time to cover last week, as well as visit a handful of. Uh, pieces that have jumped out to Everett that uh, we want to chat with him about that uh, even though we talked about him last week we're excited to get a whole new perspective as well but to kick us off for today we're going to talk about one of the flashiest cards to catch our attention and one that I think we have some hopes about its constructed playability and that is Doom Scar. So Doom Scar is three dub dub for a sorcery destroy all creatures it also has Fortel, uh, and its Fortel cost, cost is one dub dub. Dave, I'll let you kick it off because some of my notes here are, are in response to you. I mean, look, I, I guess that, you know, I said last week that I thought we were out of the banger zone as far as good cards coming out in the last week. And I think that, I mean, definitely Wati proved me wrong because I think for me, this is easily one of the top three cards in the set. It's probably probably the best card in the set, I think. Um just because it's super powerful, super flexible, um, that ability to be able to wrath without restriction for three mana, even though you have to pay five to do it, can really help occasionally and also just get some mana efficiency going. Um, you know, Todd Anderson on Twitter said that he thought this was the third best wrath of all time, and LSV and Ari Lax popped in and said, we think it's actually the second best of all time. <laughs> Which is behind um, behind Supreme Verdict, by the way, is what what they're they're saying there. Oh, I mean, I think that this card is clearly rough stuff for people who want to play aggro decks in basically any format because it lowers the bar a little bit on when you can get wrathed, and that's relevant in certain formats, um, especially when you can kill someone on turn three with prowess, for example, if you can go all in. But what do you guys think about this card? 
I'm impressed. And I think this card, coupled with some of the Fortel stuff we talked about last week, is starting to create an image in my head of what a blue-white control that has a little bit of a Fortel backbone looks like, where potentially you hide cards like this and cards like the Counterspell, maybe Raven's Form, I don't know. But you have a variety of Fortel cards depending on what scenario you're in, and then you can just start to cash them in based on how the game goes. I'm kind of scared about this card. Like, but in, in a lot of ways, it's not like functionally different for most of the decks I play in at least Historic and Pioneer than something like Anger of the Gods or like Storm's Wrath or Languish or Yehenny's Expertise or something like that. This, of course, handles things that damage-based or like negative toughness-based sweepers don't. Like Lovestruck Beasts and whatnot are going to get hit by this. Um, and this is designed to play out differently than the cards I mentioned in a lot of ways. N- note that this is double white, which means that this is like in a narrower selection of decks than even like a single white mana can support. So this card's not like going to be everywhere. This isn't something that's in a light white deck. I think it's a good card, obviously a good card, but I'm really curious what you think ever because this is the kind of card that you will cast i think it's in decks that you would play and so i think you're gonna have a more informed opinion on the actual power level of this compared to other sweepers that you've had access to well from a design perspective i love everything about it uh love the name i love the mind games i love that just like this very new interesting take on a you know 20 year old spell um and i think that this will be a standard defining card this reminds me of supreme verdict in like the return to ravnica innistrad return to ravnica theros metagame where every deck's construction is going to be built with this card in mind in standard i you know, I've been playing mostly modern lately, and it's been a long time since I felt like there are many matchups where it comes down to me casting Wrath of God as soon as possible. It's, mm-hmm. I think there are very few matchups in modern where you're really just trying to, you're like where a sweeper is a big blowout, um, or where you know you're just trying to draw your supreme verdict as soon as possible. I, I don't think that there are many matchups like that in modern right now, and mm-hmm. so I've been pretty low on Wrath effects. In modern, which is the format I play the most of, and you know this is a wrath effect. I, I will also say that, you know, the the best thing about this card, at least in standard, there have been so many standard formats where I just die on turn four before I can cast my wrath, and the fact that you can cast this on turn three is a big deal. But in older, more higher power level formats, taking that second turn off is a huge deal. You know, uh, that you know, I, it kind of reminds me of when control decks used to play search for his Kanta, and I'm like, wow, if they had cast, if they had mana leak or removal spell. I'm super dead, but they just spend two mana to not impact the board. And now I win the game. And you know, th- this is, you know, different, but uh, I, I, I'm a little, the, the foretell is certainly not a free cost. This is not a three mana Wrath of God. This is a five mana Wrath of God that you can play on layaway. And it's also a five mana Wrath of God that tells your opponent it's happening next turn, which can also take a lot of the strength out of the card uh, if, if this is the only playable foretell card in the format that you're playing in. And I don't think that there's going to be a lot of playable foretell cards in modern. So if you're trying to play this card in modern specifically, uh, it's you're kind of playing face up, even though you're playing face down. Mm-hmm. Don't you think stuff like this potentially elevates other foretell cards and 
it incentivizes you to play mind game so that you're not always projecting that information? Maybe, but the other Fertel cards are pretty low power level, and mind games have their place in Magic for sure, but, you know, you don't want to be the guy playing mind games while your opponent's just playing an escaping Uro, you know? Stomping you, yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I, I know I said this is one of the best cards in the set. I still think it is, but I do totally hear what you're saying about modern not being a fit for this just because of the efficiency and also wrath effects not being good when i look at this i just see something that makes uh blue white control in historic a lot better because it's in that middle space i mean wrath of god is a super powerful card that deck has access to that it also has access to um what's the what's the flash when i'm suddenly forgetting side the, the wreckage side of the wreckage yeah, yeah thank you so it has access to those but i think being able to threaten a wrath against a non-interactive deck on turn three is actually pretty good and historic when you look at some of the decks that are there namely auras gruel you know um those two decks come to mind mostly I agree. when i, I think agree. about that goblins even you can if you can wrath them on three that's pretty good so i think it i think it's a fit in there and i i still think that those foretell cards might be a little bit more of a fit for that format we talked about this last week a little bit but um Everett, i'm curious to know what you think just in general about foretell it sounds like you think that the mechanic is probably too slow for modern just because of that cost yes i so i think the mechanic is really cool I, yeah. I love the mechanic from a design perspective. Um, I also, I talk, people, people often ask me about mechanics and I, ha, I have this philosophy that there are, there are no, there's no such thing as a good mechanic. There are only good cards. And so I, I basically never, I don't think about mechanics when, when I'm evaluating cards. I just try mm-hmm. to think about what the card does yeah. and if that effect is good enough for modern. Um, and, you know, you know, to the people in the comments, you know, what about Dredge and Storm? There are bad Dredge cards and there are bad Storm cards. and Totally true. Yeah. Uh, I think you just need to take every card by itself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I think this is clearly uh, going to see play somewhere. Whether it expands beyond standard, I think, is the real question. Right. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's going to make it in Pioneer and Historic and not likely to make it in Modern is where I would put I, it. But. I don't even know. Man, I was going to say briefly before we move on i don't even know if this is in pioneer unless there is a white based controlling deck that's not azorius oh right yeah sure yeah yeah because it's like they already have uh the one that is not counterable supreme verdict that that one's i think really relevant especially in the spirits matchup against mausoleum wanderer from my historic experience yeah or sorry pioneer experience yeah i mean i think we'll see i think that um this is a I think this is a standard warping spell. I agree. It's a standard defining spell. Yeah, every defining every deck spell, in yeah. standard is going to be built with this card existing in mind, which is yep. very interesting to me. All right. Let's move on before we spend all of our time on that sweet wrath. Um, here's a spell that I hope is good. Um, in search of greatness, casting cost double green. An enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep you may cast a permanent spell from your hand with converted mana cost equal to one plus the highest converted mana cost among other permanents you control without paying its mana cost if you don't scry one it sounds mildly complex but it's basically <laughs> you get to cast something cast something not put it into play cast it from your hand uh, one higher than the other CMC than In Search of Greatness. 
So if you have a one CMC permanent that is out there, you get to cast a two CMC permanent from your hand for free during the beginning of your upkeep. And if you don't, you scry one. Yeah, I mean, the things I would point out really quickly with this card is that, I mean, I, I think it it's a cool card. I would like it to be kind of an Aether Viley kind of thing for historic, you know, because I think that there's some value type decks that you might be able to make work with this. Um, the one thing I would point out is that you can play a one drop of off of this if all that you have in play is In Search of Greatness, because it can look at your lands as a zero CMC permanent. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I took a look into this last night on Google some. And so I think there is a fail case where, where that works still. I, I believe that's, that's how I'm reading it too. That's not something I had realized about the card. Yeah. Which I think helps. Um, and for me, I, while I would love to see this in kind of like, I think there are a lot of people talking about this as like an engine kind of combo card where we're going to like get something out, then get a huge permanent out, then put something else in play. I really think this is like, I'm going to, I'm going to play in a deck where I have this and a whole bunch of one, two, three drops. And I'm just going to try to play my, my hand as fast as possible and find whatever those best cards are. Maybe it's some kind of Bant Spiritsy deck. Maybe it's something that's in that kind of Bant uh, Thalia deck that we've seen around in Heroic but or Historic, but I feel like this could be a cool engine for that. And the Scry helps you make sure that you get cards in the future that are good. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think this card is good enough in those other formats, maybe modern, but especially Historic and Pyo, that I think it will potentially breed or help breed a deck because A, it's 2CMC, and I think that's an important threshold in and of itself. It's an enchantment, which is a somewhat challenging permanent type to interact with for a lot of decks. And eventually, it just helps you cheat on so much mana that I think basically what you're saying, Dave, like either something like Banned Spirits or that green-white you know, creature deck, that's where I think this will eventually want to find a home as a replacement for Aether Val. This card's bad. <laughs> This 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 will never see play in a three color deck. Uh, it's green green. Like this this card is one of those cards that like reads like eye poppingly to me, and then like the more I read it, like the more I think it's actually bad. Like it's like that. It's a really rough casting cost, especially on turn two. Like Stan said, like it's oh man, it's only cost two. But like this is like if you want to cast us on turn two, this is like a Frank Karsten article. You need twenty green sources in your deck to hit this on turn two. And like for some perspective on that, like historic rule runs 13 green sources. It doesn't even run 20 lands due to land or elves. But like long story short, it's like this is a mono green or like extremely heavy green card. And like this isn't fast and it's super conditional. Like you have to have the right CMC in your hand in relation to what's on the battlefield and which is somewhat in your control, but not tremendously. And then you have to imagine like, what is this really saving me? over the course of the game. And was that worth taking turn two off to cast this card? Like let's, let's say it's like a foretell card, right? Like I can imagine like best case scenarios, like in, in the hand dumping type deck, like Dave was saying, is like, okay, turn one dork or like an elf of some kind, like in, let's say an elf deck that Stan would play, right? Turn two, you play this. Turn three, you get a free two drop and enough mana for a three drop on the battlefield. Turn four, you get a free four drop that you would have been able to cast with your mana anyway, and then your hand's empty. So maybe you have some like mana open for like an onboard activation. That's cool. But like, was that really any better than just playing your hand out naturally? Was this worth the downside of giving you 
potentially very little but a few scries and you played nothing else on turn two but this enchantment one response to that i don't think you have to play this on turn two for it to be good i think you can play this after you've unloaded your hand and maybe even at the point where you can start to double spell where the creatures you've already put down on the board start generating extra value for you afterward ever what do you think i think this card's great uh it's great it costs green green uh yes i think it's great because it costs green green uh and specifically devotion strategies in pioneer and modern um so i I know maybe i'm a broken record but i I think uh in in modern specifically one really interesting interaction is ley line of abundance where you have a zero mana ley line of abundance and then you get to play this, and then you have a zero mana Oath of Nissa, and you have an insane, or, oh, sorry, Nissa who shakes the world, and then you just have an insane turn three. And that's the nut draw, but it also seems very interesting alongside Karn the Great Creator, which, where you can tutor up specific CMCs to make sure that you can get value out of uh, its ability. And, you know, and double spelling is also incredibly important in, in Magic the Gathering, and that's what this card does. The two devotion is super relevant for these Nykthos strategies. Uh, I'm going to be trying to to break this card, and that's like the the area I'm going to start. Yeah, I think that um, you know, ever present Mickey. I think he actually brought that up, like the ley line uh, thing, because he's a he was playing Green Devotion in Historic recently, and I kind of forgot about that particular option uh, when I was writing up these notes. But I mean, I'd like this to be good, but I think that the worst case scenario, I think the floor is low and I don't like low floor cards. See, I think that that like opened a whole new perspective for me on this card ever where it's kind of like, I I totally, when I first read this, I just continued to believe that this said creature and it says permanent. And so that, that changes it quite a bit because you can play whatever, off of it depending on what you have going on and so while it is it does have a lot of restrictions on what you can do the scry is not zero and if it helps you double spell on a future turn i think that's good too you can kind of just view it as a ramp spell you know yeah yeah exactly and so from there if you think about it for scrying and then occasionally you search something up with karn and play it the next turn that's that's pretty interesting too and then i love the idea of using it with devotion because it's just a, a permanent that's really hard to interact with so that's great I think it's a card that has a lot of potential. I wouldn't be surprised to see it flop, but I do hope that, I mean, especially in the green devotion strategies, which I wouldn't mind having a reason to play again, for sure. I didn't definitely did not think we would leave the discussion feeling like this had a home in modern. I'll say that, but it makes sense. Uh, I'm, I'm, that's going to be one of the first things I'm trying when the set releases is mono green devotion with this card. Is this Ponza? Does this, does this uh... make it easier for Ponza to keep like <laughs> a hand with, without a way to ramp on to turn three on turn two so you can go like one two this and then three bloodman ponza really wants to three drop on turn two and this card doesn't do that but maybe maybe like the first copy is good and you don't really ever want to draw two um that's why you have season pyromancer right yeah maybe maybe yeah that, that actually is a really good argument Maybe Stan. Maybe you can, you can cast Oath of Nissa even if you don't have a permanent in play, which is kind of kind of sweet. All right, that's enough green cards for now. Let's talk about a blue card. No, it's Mystic Reflection. One in a blue for an instant. Choose target non-legendary creature. The next time one or more creatures or planeswalkers enter the battlefield this turn, they enter as copies of the chosen creature instead, and you can foretell this for a single blue. All right, so. I put this card up into the top tier of our spoilers for the beginning of the discussion because I feel like there's some kind of wild combo we will either find out 
about from Everett's <laughs> mouth right now, or we'll find out in about a week from people messing around with this in modern because this card is wild, right? Like it feels like there's a million different ways to use it. You know, another brewer streamer uh, content creator that has written about this a little bit is Yeoman Five, um, Adam Hernandez, who is, he put a put up an article on TCG Player last week, and it was really interesting to see all of the different builds that he put together on it. I just think it's a really powerful card. The deal is that you can often use it to change a card that you don't want to see from your opponent into an ostensibly weaker card that you have, okay, or that they have. And then you can also use it to generate a bunch of value off of a token maker. The uh, the uh, example that Yeoman 5 used is Siege Gang Commander, where if you play this card, uh, play Siege Commander, then play this card targeting Siege, Siege Gang Commander with a trigger on the stack, the tokens from Siege Gang Commander make three more Siege Gang Commanders that then make make three uh, three more tokens each. And so you end up with four Siege Gang Commanders and nine Goblin Tokens off of off of that combination now I, I don't know if that's really the way that ultimately we play this card but that's the type of wild things that this does this card's really it's a cool. cool card yeah makes it does make me say wow when i read it it makes me really think hard about it i look at this more like an offensive value combo card than like a defensive tool because i think it's probably too conditional for a control deck to want to use to like Oh, I can turn this Lovestruck Beast into a 1 1 token or something like that. Yeah. Because, like, even if it did that, was that really worth the card in your deck? And probably not. So, I think it's like a little, it's like cheeky to be like, oh, I can have some fun shenanigans. And if you want to do that, more power to you. But I do like it in like a sort of theoretical deck that's using it for value shenanigans because it still can be used as that defensive tool against something your opponent's trying to do. So like, even if you don't have your setup working quite right, the floor on this card's a little higher because it always has something to do where it's like, okay, uh, my opponent's casting their powerful, their powerful planeswalker, a powerful creature. I'm going to turn it into this Llanowar elf to buy me some time or something like that. So it doesn't always stink, even if like you aren't comboing off. Yeah. And does this spark anything for you, Everett? Um, kind of. I mean, I think this card has two really... has two things that are really, um, you know, negative for it, especially in older formats. Uh, you know, I, I think that you're almost always going to be wanting to foretell this for one blue mana because in order for this to work, you're also casting a creature spell. And so because that it's in, in a competitive setting, it's going to be pretty easy for your opponent to read what you're on if they understand what your deck is doing. And so like maybe you can get somebody with this on the first few weeks of a tournament. But if they know what your deck is and they know you're a mystic reflection deck, they're going to be able to understand what's going on. And that's extra bad because this spell targets. And so uh, when you go for your combo with your siege game commander or your seasoned pyromancer or your master of waves, they just will, you know, kill it with a removal spell and then two for one you you know and you'll still get your tokens but that's you know you're going to lose a lot of value in, instead of gaining it in those spots and you know you're going to be spending a lot of mana they'll be spending like one mana on a push or a, a bolt or a path and it's going to be bad um that being said i i do think it's really interesting as a way to fight primeval titan you know if you copy like their boreal grazer or your you know arbor elf and just turn it into a one one that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think it's probably going to have to, it probably competes too hard with Aethergust to do that. But like maybe if you're already a Mystic Reflection deck, 
it can get there. I know I, in Pioneer, I always liked Leyline of Anticipation plus Master of Waves and flash it into Master of Waves on your opponent's instep. And then you can maybe, maybe set up like this two-card combo where you Leyline of Anticipation, Master of Waves, copy Master of Waves, make a huge board and attack your opponent uh, in, in Modern. but Or, or Pioneer, that, that combo is also legal in Pioneer, um, which is where I played the, the deck mostly. So you could look at using it there if you really like this card, but... Um, and and there's, it's also possible that there's some shenanigans with Seagate Stormcaller or Dualcaster Mage in Historic, but I have a hard time imagining that any shenanigans with this card is better than just Neoform. So that's that's kind of like the problem there. I wonder a little bit if it might be a rule of eight kind of thing. Like I did read about some interactions between Seagate, like like you said, Seagate Dualcaster and um, Mystic Reflection. And maybe it's like you run Neoform and Mystic Reflection, and then you have draws that are live to both kind of so that it makes your deck even more consistent than what it is now. If there's a way to build it that way, I'm not I'm not sure. But I, I think you're right that there's some kind of shenanigans with that, too. What about this and something just like Young Pyromancer or Season Pyromancer to make extra copies of PZs? Well, the way, I, the, way, the way I'm reading it, I mean, I guess it just makes one extra copy of PZ, right? Because it, it, it copies every time, like, the next one instance of Token Makers is happening. That way it doesn't go infinite with anything that just makes one token. So it's not like you cast this and then every instant of sorcery you cast gives you another Young Pyromancer. It's just going to give you one young pyromancer um which is not which is good i mean for actually for three mana effectively that's not good never mind that's just you know more mana you're spending for a new copy of young pyromancer than can't you play this at the end of a chain though when you have multiple pz triggers on the stack because it says they enter as copies of the chosen creature it says that well the the, each each young pyromancer elemental token will enter separately and so i believe that this will happen one elemental token will happen, it'll copy, and then the next one will just be a regular elemental. Correct. That's my understanding of it. Yeah, it says the cool. next time is the key part there. But I still think because of the foretell cost being able to get down to zero or get down to one, sorry, I think that that puts this in consideration set for a whole bunch of different things. And then, yeah, this is just like a Brewer's Delight kind of card, right? And we already cho- you know sketched up scenarios in modern in pioneer in historic for for all these different things to turn combos and maybe even some value as well so seems like a cool card definitely felt like one of the most powerful things that's come out in the last week and i i, I kind of feel like somebody's gonna break it uh, i haven't done it yet though speaking of last week can we revisit some of last week's cards now that everett's here yeah i definitely want to get his insight on some of the things we talked about or that you or that you know that we did talk about and wanna wanna give us some feedback on. So what I would say is the first thing I want to know is Everett, what's the card that you think everybody is not talking about right now that you want to talk about? Well, I guess I don't really know what people are talking about, but Magda Brazen Outlaw I think is has a ton of potential. Uh it's the the legendary two mana two one dwarf that gives other dwarves you control plus one plus oh, which is a nice flavor text. And it says, whenever a dwarf you control becomes tapped, you create a treasure token, and you can sacrifice five treasures to search your library for an artifact or dragon card and put that card onto the battlefield and shuffle your library. Um, I'm I'm pretty interested in this card. I I think that it has the potential to do really powerful things in older formats where you can search up incredibly powerful artifacts like Blightsteel Colossus, God Pharaoh Statue. Okay. Um, you know just crazy cards and cheat on mana in that way. Um, I kind of think it's cute with Springleaf Drum. You play this and you're tapping it for mana. You're, you're making artifacts. You're making Springleaf Drum. Um, the 
Treasure tokens play really nicely with Urza, which is a super powerful payoff for being an artifact synergies. There is there are some dragons that make treasure tokens that have been printed recently. There's a three mana five four that makes a treasure token. I think for each creature your opponents controlled that died. Uh, and then there's like the new five mana four four. And I'm not saying that those are necessarily good, but there's like those cards. And then there's the blue red enchantment from Ixalan that whenever you deal combat damage to your opponent, you get a treasure token and then it flips and turns into a Talarian Academy, <laughs> uh, which is really good if you have a lot of treasure tokens. And I mean, I'm not saying any of these necessarily individual cards are going to be good, but I think if you can turn that third ability into something that's going to consistently happen, this card is bonkers broken, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good, really good tutor effect. Yeah. Yeah, put it into play is great. So yeah. the way that you're thinking about decks with this, to be super clear for for those of us in the back of the classroom, is you're thinking about building treasure generators into a deck where Magda's the payoff and not trying to do anything with bringing dwarves, trying to find some way to have dwarves make treasures, yeah. right? And maybe, yeah, maybe you have Dwarvered Mine in your deck and you're tapping those to... Uh, Springleaf Drum has been something I have considered, mm-hmm. uh, but um, this is that this is that line of text that it, it, this is mostly going to be a treasure generator deck than a dwarf tribal deck, unless when I'm building I find that there are billions of good dwarves that play well with artifacts I, that I, I don't know about. Yeah, that's the hard part. Is like when I looked at this card, I was like, all right, what dwarves are cool? And I'm like, uh, SRAM, and that's kind of it, and doesn't really play along with this necessarily unless you were searching up equipment for some reason but even that's not really probably where you want to go so you know it definitely reads super powerful because that tutor like you said um so that's awesome what dragons do you think i mean are you thinking artifacts you're searching up are you thinking about like i I think that you're more so going to be searching up artifacts like crazy powerful ones mind slaver a god pharaoh statue blind steel colossus i imagine you'll be playing different ones for different matchups maybe in your sideboard bolas's citadel is a really powerful card but there is there is like a three mana dragon from m21 i mean i don't know the name of it but i believe it is a three mana uh five four dragon and um whenever a at the end of your, uh, your opponent's instep here it's a legendary creature it can't attack unless you control four more artifacts it's a three mana five four flyer at the beginning of your instep, you create a treasure token for each non-token creature that died this turn. Um, and I think that this card, it, it's something you can get off of your uh, Magda if you want, but it also is a token generator and it's a 3-mana 5-4 flyer and an artifact synergy deck. Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely interested in, in that card as being one of the token the treasure generators. Yeah, one more way to get a God Pharaoh statue on the board, right? Oh yeah, any way to get God Pharaoh statue to play is... Uh, I'll tell you all right with me the first deck that I built on arena uh, after not playing arena for like a year and a half was a mono green Karn deck basically. And it really opened my eyes very quickly to how good uh, Nissa that sh- who shakes the world is, which I didn't realize before. And then also God Pharaoh statue is sweet. What an amazing card. Um, all right. Another card I, I would love to hear what you think about from that. We talked about last week because I know Stan's going to want to hear about it is Tybalt's trickery. Is this any interest to you? Is this? Uh, it's it's an interesting card. People are asking me about it a lot. Uh, this is not a fair card that you play in your sideboard of your red decks because you want to play with counter spells. Don't do oh. that in any okay. deck. I Boo. think. Um, Even against like big combos, like I, I stop your you know your your living end win or something like I that. I mean, if or? you want to play against living end, play Soul Guide Lantern. You know, 
that like for most of your like red decks to fight against combo decks you're going to have pithy needle graveyard hate surgical extraction they're going to be more effective ways to counter this instead of like you know randomly just giving your opponent the combo again Ugh, this guy's so practical and so i i do know about the cascade tibble's trickery deck in modern it's super cool yeah genius idea i don't think it's going to be competitive though um if you play the version with simian spirit guides and chancellor of the of the drox uh where so for those of you who don't know if you can cascade into tibble's trickery tibble's trickery can counter your cascade spell and then you can spin the wheel and try to cast an Omniscience or cast an Emrakul and uh, just win the game. And there are two ways you can build it. You can build it with Simeon Spirit Guide and Chancellor of the Annex and try or Chancellor of the Dross. Sorry, uh, no, not Dross. Tangle, Tangle, the one that the one that makes green mana. And, and try to try to try to cast this on turn one or two and try to get an Emrakul. The problem is if you hit a Simeon Spirit Guide or a Chancellor or another Tibble's Trickery. You fizzle for the most part. I mean, Chancellor is okay, but and if you hit uh, another Cascade spell, uh, you have to spin the wheel again, and there's like another chance that you could fail. Uh, but if you do hit, if you do hit another Cascade spell, you get to cast another Tibble's Trickery, and so the I think that the fail rates on that build is like forty percent for you to cast the spell and not cast something big, which is too high in my opinion. And then um, the other version just plays four Violent Outburst. It plays, I think, one Tibble's Trickery, like two Emrakuls. And the idea is uh, you are basically on turn three going to be able to try to cast an Emrakul. It's going to be consistent. But that's all your deck does. That's all your deck can do, uh, you know, because, you know, you're going to be unable to sideboard very much. And you're going to fold to discard spells, counter spells, force of negation, Teferi Time Raveler. The deck, the deck can't beat Teferi Time Raveler. Um, and it's it's very cool. Casting an Emrakul on turn 3 is very powerful, but Modern is also a format where you can cast under a City Informer or Balustrade Spy and win with just that one card. Modern is a format where Goblin Charbelcher is a, also a one-card combo. Neoform is it like this really fast turn 1, turn 2, kill you deck. And I think all three of those decks are doing what this Tibble's Trickery deck is doing but more consistently and more resiliently um, and faster. And so I, so as cool as this deck is, I don't think that it is going to make an impact in the competitive modern environment as neat as it is. And so your gut is that this is the only use for this card really yes, is some I, kind I of thing playing like this. Fairly is not a thing that will happen at competitive tables. It will be an awesome EDH card. I'll probably cast it in EDH because I've been getting into that lately. Um, but you know it, it, it is not it is not a fair card at all yeah cool what hold on. I, I got we gotta talk about the snow duels a little bit because i think dave at least thinks that they are going to sort of revitalize the concept of snow in modern what do you think yeah just to put a one finer point on what shane said I think they're going to bring Ice Van Quattle back into four color Omnath. That that's mostly what I think could happen if they want it to happen because of meta conditions. Mm, maybe I, I would say maybe like the three color Uro piles potentially. Okay. I mean, I I think that it's not just the these lands, but it's also a combination of of good snow cards being in this set that may you know create some snow archetypes. But I don't think that these cards will be huge format defining things like i think they will be fringe role players and some decks with snow synergies 
I doubt you'll see very many copies played, but they'll be played as a as a as a dual land you can fetch end of turn, and that that are that are for your snow matters, which is which is good, which is a a good thing to have. Notably, you can't fetch these off of Prismatic Vista, and in the past, Prismatic Vista was like your best fetch land in your snow decks because it gets all your snow lands. But now it doesn't anymore. So I think that that dynamic is really interesting. And but but yeah, they'll be playable, but they won't yeah. be like super good. I think my thought was just a lot of these decks already play snow snow basics anyway because of because of field of field of the dead, and so they might have a mix. They might go to all snow basics, and then you throw two or three snow duels in to be able to fetch up to be able to to be able to ice fan quaddle and like ice fan quaddle was a heck of a card to play against in these control shells with um with cryptic command. You know where they would you know draw a card pick it back up you know do all you know draw extra cards off of it so it just seemed like there might be enough incentive to have that happen i don't think they're going to see play other than that unless there are some snow themed decks that have that and i haven't seen any snow payoffs yet in this set that make me feel like there is anything that even is close to the same level as ice fang really i think i think that i mean you definitely play ice fang in a lot of the snow matters decks but i think there's two or three snow cards that We'll make the cut and like you'll play these lands in some of those decks yeah okay all right last one I, w- I would love to hear from you from last week unless you is there anything else on this list that you want to talk about um that's in yellow maybe old gra- so the the i want to talk about valky and slash tibble to maybe old growth troll okay P- people are gonna have our heads if you don't at least give five seconds on at least at least saw it coming if not behold the multiverse uh, which one is which one is that? So, <laughs> behold, behold the multiverse is the foretell glimmer genius, the scry two draw two. Oh, and then saw it coming is the counter spell. Neither of those cards are playable in modern. I think they're both really cool. They'll probably be good in standard, maybe historic. Uh, not good in modern. Yeah, print it. It's kind of kind of my thought too. Unfortunately. All right, old growth. Let's talk about old growth. Old growth. Old town road. Real quick. Let's talk about old town road. <laughs> All right, old growth troll. All right, my thoughts on this card are that I love it. It's a three mana four four, um, and it's it, card rules. Yeah, it, it it's three three mana four four. It's good. End of end of uh, review. Yeah, I mean, we were just like when we talked about this last week, Everett. We were just like, this is a really good value card. I don't even know what else to say about it. It's like the best card on rate ever. Yeah, it, it also has trample. I will say that this card is going to be super weird and standard because Love Struck Beast exists. But what I like about this card, when it, when it dies, you return it as an R enchantment attached to a forest, and that forest has tapped to add two green. So it's a ramp spell, and when it cut, when it dies, it still gives you that three devotion for Nykthos. Even when it dies, it's still three devotion. And then you can sacrifice the land and get a three four four token with trample. So I like this deck, this card a lot in devotion strategies and in uh, you know. Maybe Stompy decks too will want to play it. Do you think it's better than Steel Leaf? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, but it's close for sure. Just the fact that Steel Leaf's biggest problem is that it's kind of soft to removal, and this is much more resilient to removal. And it does lose that point of power, but you know, occasionally trample. I guess it can't be blocked by creatures of power two or greater is better than trample, but but margin only marginally. I would say it's I. Yeah, it's it's close. I would say that this is better than Steel Leaf, but it's it's similar for sure. Awesome. All right, I'd love to hear what you have to say about Valky Tybalt. Not going to read the card because there's so many lines of text on it again. So it's, it's a it's a confusing card. I don't know how to evaluate this the Tybalt side, mm. and I kind of know how to evaluate the Valky side. I feel like so I I know everybody's so everybody's going crazy. You can cascade into it. You can cascade 
into Valky, and then you can cast Tybalt. We like tricky things around here, yeah. Everett. John does tier one again. <laughs> Tybalt, John does tier one again. Uh, which I don't think is true, but I, I actually I do think this card is playable at modern. Um, and that is because I think the Valky side is pretty good. I think Valky, God of Lies, when it enters the battlefield, each opponent reveals their hand. For each opponent, exile a creature card this way until it leaves the battlefield, and you can spend X and choose a creature card exiled with it, and um, and then it becomes a copy of that card. And so what I see happening a lot of the time is you'll play a discard spell, you'll cast this card on turn two, you'll exile the Uro from your opponent's hand, and then on turn three, you'll turn this into Uro and attack with it. Right. And I think that that sequence is pretty good. Just snagging any creature is going to be like a Mesmeric Fiend, still 2-1. Um, if you cascade into it, it is great. In the late game, if you top deck this, you have a very powerful 7-mana Planeswalker. I think that Tismal Cosmic Imposter, if you were to, if it was just that card, it would be insanely good at five mana. It would be about appropriately costed at six mana, but not like really good enough. Uh, but the fact that you're going to be casting like a two mana creature most of the time really does mitigate the downside of being a seven mana Planeswalker, you know? that That's what I really love about these dual face cards is that it seems like most of the dual face cards we have from Kaldheim are going to be good in drastically different situations. And I think that's really, really good. And I, I think that this card is going to be modern playable. It's not going to be, I think, a staple, but I'm going to cast it and hope that it's good. And I think that it will be. That's awesome. All right, let's get into some new stuff. We got a bunch of cards to get through. Uh, addition to the ones, the three that we already talked about that were new. Yeah, these are like, these are the maybe, more maybes. This is the <laughs> even more maybe than the stuff we just talked about. So I, I'm going to go through, we can go through these ones kind of quick unless there's something to talk about. So the first one that was interesting to me in this next bucket, honestly, was Immersturm Predator, which is two black red. It is a vampire dragon with flying. It's a 3-3. And it says whenever Immersturm Predator becomes tapped, exile up to one target, card from a graveyard and put a plus one plus one counter on Immersturm Predator, sacrifice another creature, Immersturm Predator gains indestructible to end of turn, tap it. Important question before we get into this. How do you think a dragon becomes a vampire? Or he gets bit by a Falcon Wrath Aristocrat. Yeah, that which is exactly what this card is, right? <laughs> I think I think the idea of a vampire dragon is super cool. Why it's in this set, I'm not sure. It feels like a very thing to have pop up in Innistrad towards the yeah, end. It's like a really sweet yeah, thing, yeah. but but that's all right. I think that this is a, a card that just a lot of people are going to look at as fitting into John slash Rakdos sack in historic somewhere because it looks like it's for that deck. It's got an onboard, it, you know, it gets bigger. It's evasive. There's not a lot of evasive threats in that deck. It's got a, a no mana cost sacrifice outlet that protects your card. Like, it seems pretty good as something to test out in there. To me, I feel like I, I'm a little worried about it in the sense of just like four CMC is kind of expensive for that deck. Although sometimes you get a lot of land going in that deck because you can draw a lot of cards off of either your Bomat Couriers or your um, the Zombie Knight guy from Guilds of Ravnica. So I, I'm kind of on the border with it. I feel like it could happen as a 2x maybe. There are a couple of cards in these builds that I just don't really like right now and those cards would be like i've never played with dreadhorde butcher but i've also never seen it do more than one damage to anything ever and also i have um i don't really like scrap heap scrounger too much in this deck either and so i feel like there is a little bit of wiggle room still to like try a card like this in it but yeah i i agree with that assessment basically word for word look at that do you think this is a main deck card or a sideboard piece like is this i, like... I, think, this is a, I think this is a main deck card i think like 
maybe you could play this card over Coco in like a straight red black version. Um, and like the, it's, it generates a lot of value for you in the same way Coco does. It might not be as good as that spot, but you probably don't play this and Collected Company. And Collected Company is the main reason to be green. And now you have better mana because you're red black and you have a really powerful payoff. Um, I also think this card is probably going to be standard playable too uh for whatever that's worth i mean imagine this if if cauldron familiar i mean if cauldron familiar was still available yeah, in standard it would just yeah, be yeah. this it would just be racked sack and standard you know what i mean so i mean this feels like it fits and yeah i think it's just like do you want a top end threat in this deck because otherwise you're really reliant on either swarming people or pinging them down with uh mayhem devil which is a great plan but this gives you a chance to kind of drop something and swing in for five in the air and i, I don't think that's terrible i think it's terrible stan is like stan's only write up for in our notes for this card is just the grimace emoji that's all it is i just i don't want to belabor this point but like you know i i haven't played rakdos sack i played other rakdos style decks in historic but like is this making your bad matchups better like i feel like you're this is the kind of thing like it looks maybe good against like removal heavy decks right where it's like i'm gonna make this thing survive it's going to be my my finisher but i already i already feel like you're good against removal heavy decks i honestly think it's about flying yeah i, I more than anything else Dave, the flying is so huge okay yeah. yeah, it's about having an evasive threat because you can get ground locked with this deck. And if you never get your engine going or they manage to abrade all of your witches ovens or something, it, you can kind of just sit there and not do anything. And mm-hmm. so just having this as an all out, I think, is decent enough for consideration anyway. Sure. All right. Next card. Shane, I think this one was on your radar. Yeah, this is this is okay. Radane Rydane, God of the Worthy. Two and a white, legendary creature god, flying, vigilance, 2-3. Snow lands, your opponent's control, enter the battlefield tapped. Non-creature spells, your opponent's cast, with CMC 4 or more, cost 2 generic, more to cast. Flip side, uh, Valkmira Protector Shield, 3 and a white, legendary artifact. If a source an opponent controls would deal damage to you, or a permanent you control, prevent one of that damage. Also, whenever you or a permanent you control becomes the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter that spell or ability unless its controller pays one. So here's the ostensible snow hate piece. And I think it's somehow it's worse than people expected, but I think a lot better than people seem to think it is. Because I think people were expecting like a snow choke. Mm-hmm. or a snow boil like i kind of was expecting a, a snow choke right i was i was thinking a lot about that lately and i just don't think they can print a snow choke or a snow boil in a standard set there's just like no way it's too much it would just ruin they would ruin the idea like you couldn't play a snow deck i think they could have printed something like that in modern horizons and i think they should have but as far as like for a standard format there's just no way they could print a card like that yeah uh, but I, I do think this card is good. Yeah, I think this is good enough. Yeah, I think the worst card line on this text, the worst part of this card is snow lands your opponent's control into the battlefield tapped. I, I think that's the worst part of the card, but the rest of the card is pretty good. Yeah, and I think having snow lands come into play tapped is, is a significant enough threat to make people pause about the way they're using snow in a format, right? Like it's just being this card being out there is a big scare, especially because it's not just a snow choke. Like it's not just a sideboard card. I think it probably is, but like this card does a lot. Like it making CMC four or more 
non-creature spells cost two more is not trinket text. It's a god pharaoh statue, kind yeah. of. <laughs> There's a lot of significant spells in every format that we discuss that are CMC four or more. A two three flying vigilance, pretty okay. I mean, it's Gaddic Teague, right? Which is a card that sees play. It's just a little more expensive, and it has a flip side. So, and Gaddic Teague does some other stuff too. But and the flip side, Dave, like you said, I think it's a little. I think it's overcosted, but. It gives an ostensible piece of value against different kinds of decks than Radane does, right? So, like, if it's if you're, if you're going up against an aggro deck and you have this card, you can play the artifact side, and it's probably too late potentially. But you have an ability; you have ways to prevent damage from creatures that are slamming in. You make their spells uh, harder to cast. You're taxing them that's perfectly fine on the other side you're against maybe slower decks that have more expensive spells and so i like that this is a flexible piece of tech that you could ostensibly main deck and not be ashamed of it and it's perfectly good coming out of the sideboard for a lot of different strategies one thing i like about this card and what i like about a lot of the new the, the second half of gods that were spoiled all i feel like shared this quality where if the front half of the god was going to be bad, the back half of the god would be good in a lot of the matchups that the front half is bad in, where the bit, the worst part about this card is the three points of toughness for three mana. And so if you're playing against a removal heavy deck, this card is going to be bad, so you can play the other side of it. And it's going to be good against a deck with a lot of removal spells. And if you're playing against you know a combo deck, you get to play the front half. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of the other... Uh, mdfc gods and that's what gives these cards a lot of the power and i think that this card will be modern playable it's going to really compete hard with archon the new archon from zendikar um but i think this card will be modern playable the snow part will be almost irrelevant (laughs) in my opinion it's going to be not that big a deal um but i think the rest of the card like will make the cut in some you know white strategies wow that's cool all right another one i wasn't expecting to hear we might be able to see a modern that's cool all right, next card on our list, Kosama, God of the Voyage, two and a blue for legendary creature god. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may exile Kosama. If you do, it gains. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, if Kosama is exiled, you may put a voyage counter on it. If you don't, when Kosama returns, return Kosama to the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it and draw X cards where X is a number of voyage counters on it. Two, four. <laughs> what do you call that ability, David, in, in alpha speak? <laughs> Oh man, it's it does look like two uh, two headed giant of four eyes kind of. Imagine when they write this, it down. this is like alpha templating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the back is the Omen Keel, which is Kosama's boat, which is one in a blue for a legendary artifact vehicle. Whenever a vehicle you control deals combat damage to a player, that player exiles that many cards from the top of their library. You may play lands from among those cards for as long as they remain exiled. Crew one for a three three. So I think this card is interesting. Uh, it's super cheap. And I feel like it has a ton of value on it on kind of either side available. You, you exile Kosama basically is what happens. Then you play a land, you put a counter on it. The next time you play a land, you get to bring it back with a counter and draw a card. Um, with fetches, you get to speed up the whole thing a whole lot. You can make Kosama huge, draw a bunch of cards when she comes back into play. Um, and then the other side is a super, super cheap vehicle that lets you get lands off of your opponents, which can also be good to help you ramp, make sure you're playing playing cards uh have have mana whenever you need it so i feel medium on it but i feel like it's also got a lot of snowball potential to get really powerful i like this card i think it's a good card um it's slow 
but I mean, and there's there might be any number of like threats that a slow control deck might want to play, but this is like heavily protectable. It steadily grows. It provides card draw, uh, and it still costs three. And the control deck taking like let's say turn three, turn four off to cast this. Assume it doesn't get removed until their next upkeep. That's kind of a big ask. I might be looking at it in a narrow fashion. This card is super weird. I do love that it can protect itself from wraths. So imagine this with Doomscar. If you're holding up Doomscar in exile and you want to like cash that in, you can just hide this in exile for a turn. And this potentially lets you like put down a creature in a controlling wrath-based deck that wouldn't have protection from the deck otherwise. <laughs> I think I agree with that assessment that this card is super weird. I think I, I also agree with Stan's assessment that it's powerful and versatile. The problem is there aren't a lot of blue decks that af- can afford to play cheap creatures to crew this card and also are trying to dirtle and draw a ton of cards. You know, usually if you're dirtling and drawing a ton of cards, you're playing a control deck and you're playing lots of reactive instants and sorceries. You're not able to crew the omen kill uh very well um cosmos probably too slow as a card advantage engine in in older formats especially but i really like the design and maybe this card will surprise me but i think that this is one of those cards that's powerful but doesn't fit into really any established archetype well and isn't so powerful that it's going to establish a new archetype fair all right let's keep it moving i got another weird god to talk about Burgi, god of storytelling two generic and a red Legendary creature god, it's a 3-3. Whenever you cast a spell, add red. Until end of turn, you don't lose this mana as steps and phases end. That's some of their favorite new text that they love to put on things. Creatures you control can boast twice during each of your turns rather than once. That line of text will never matter to anybody when they're playing this card. Um, and then the backside of it is Harnfell, Horn of Abundance, which is four and a red for a legendary artifact that says, discard a card, exile the top two cards of your library. You may play those cards this turn. This is a card I want to love. I want this card to be good so bad because it so feels... For the boast, right? You want to make two dragons? You know that I love boast. I just want dragon kin friend or whatever to be a playable card. No, I mean, I just feel like this is a... I, I love decks that play a lot of spells, a lot of cheap spells fast. And I feel like this is a card that looks like when you first look at it, that it's a payoff in that kind of zone. Now, it is certainly a template kind of like runaway steamkin. I do think one main distinction is that you get the mana back from Bridgy right, away, right away instead of from Steamkin where you have to do it in groups of three. I also think it's a little more durable against removal in Historic, for sure, and slightly more durable against removable in Modern, even. Slightly. Um, but I think I would love this to be the type of thing where like suddenly this is an engine that helps put Phoenix back on the map in historic or something like that, where you it helps you channel or helps you get more mana to play your cheap spells um, or something like that. I also think that the flip side is interesting. You can discard your whole hand to this. It, you can't only activate the discard part once a turn. You can activate as many times as you want, which I think is really cool, too. And I feel like there's probably some kind of brokenness there, although four and a red for an artifact is very expensive. Yeah, I think this card's broken. Um, I, 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 yeah. Um, Fist pump! I'm not 100% sure, but I think it is. Like, what's kind of crazy, what I love about this card is that the two sides of it synergize so well together. It's just like if you have Burgi and you draw another copy and you get Hardfell into play, 
they work so well together. You could just churn through your whole deck, and I love that part of it. And both, like the fact that this card is both an incredible mana engine and a good card advantage engine, is just unreal to me. It's just unreal to me that it's both of those things. I I can't. I've been trying to think about any card that's both a great mana engine and a card advantage engine, and there's and that happens so rarely. Primeval Titan. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, and that card's <laughs> that and that card's busted, and that card costs more mana than this card. Um, I mean, you have to build around it, of course. It, I imagine that this will be like an incredibly good engine in a fragile storm deck of some kind. And I'm, you know, three mana three threes are not don't have a great track record of trying to untap with those. And neither do five mana artifacts. But both sides of the cards read just totally, totally power, incredibly powerful to me. And I uh, predict that this card will be a player in more so older formats than newer formats because older formats have cheaper spells. Yeah, I mean that's the big thing, right? Is that you get a mana off of and it's not it doesn't say what type of spell either. It's just you play Mishra's Bobble, you get a red mana. You play Mana Morphos, you get three mana back. You play any ritual, you get a plus one off of it instead of instead of only and so oh, you get plus two off of it instead of plus one. So it has that kind of Baral Goblin Electromancer effect. I don't know if that means it fits into Storm necessarily, but it does feel like there's a bunch of there is a storm-esque thing that will happen here. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be exactly storm as we know it, but like, imagine if Baral was also a card advantage engine. If you like drew too many Baral's, like, how absurd would that be? And this is more mana. This is like this is like the red monastery mentor, probably, right? I mean, live the huh? dream. Do you Maybe, think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's going to be the kind of card where it's like it's probably uh, yeah. This this could actually see some vintage play. Yeah, like this is probably it's probably better, like you said, in older formats than newer. Like it's like try to untap with this in modern. Good luck. And there's there's also like less removal spells in Legacy and Vintage, and so I, I could I could definitely see this card being uh, real there as well. Yeah, I think it's like it's tempting to like sort of compare this to Steamkin, but I think versus Steamkin, I think like Steamkin's more flexible of the that concept. Like some of the part of the fun of Steamkin is like fancy timing, using it when it's more valuable, saving it up in reserve regrowing steam can back into like a big threat and then shrinking it back down when you don't need it to be all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. See, I think this card is more flexible than steam can honestly, hundred mm-hmm. percent because you get the mana out in whatever increment you want where steam can, you only get to cash it out in threes, right? So you have to cast three spells, yeah. then you have to get the mana, yeah. then you have to do that. And this is just like, this is spell in mana out spell in mana out. So I, I think that the play pattern is going to be a lot easier to go off with this than it is with steam. I just think they're different. Play yeah, patterns I agree completely. too. Like, I just think they're very different. I think we've been a little understated about how yes. powerful it is to just discard your whole hand on command. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that for five mana. Right. But you know, if you're playing an infernal tutor in legacy, it's a big deal. There, there's always Infernal Tutor, as I frequently say. But like, imagine something like this in Hollow One, something like this in Riel. Even is that is that something Stan actually said? No, that? he's never said that okay. in his entire life. We don't know anything about Legacy. Is the gag, unfortunately. Just just let me be cool in front of our I guests, know. guys. I know you're trying, Stan. But uh, yeah, I, I think this card just has someone's gonna do something cool with this. Yeah. Okay. How about this next card? Are we gonna do anything cool with this? This is blue. Stan, you want to read this blue card? Yeah, so this next card is Ascendant Spirit. It's a single blue for a 1-1 snow creature spirit. That checks out. You can also pay Snow Snow to make Ascendant Spirit a spirit warrior with base power 2-3. So far, so good. 
but wait, there's more. You can also pay Snow, Snow, Snow to make Ascendant Spirit a warrior, put a flying counter on it, uh, and it becomes a 4-4. Hold on. One more thing. You can pay Snow, 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 Snow to make it an angel and put two 1-1 counters on it, and then whenever it deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. And that's it. And what's no, what's notable is you can keep activating that. So if you if you've activated that twice, you get to draw two cards when you hit. So it has yeah, because it it's like casting curiosity on it over over and over again, right? Yeah. So it stacks. That's interesting. I mean, I love. I, I I'm always confounded by these cards a little bit, right? Like figure of destiny, the black white one, warden of the first tree. Like how good is this card and what deck does it fit into is interesting but it it, the attraction to something that can like grow over time is cool like a scaling threat is cool but it's it's pricey on rate so i wonder if this can maybe replace terramander or even brineborn cutthroat in mono blue tempo because you can just replace all of those basic islands with snow islands without making any other changes yeah I think I think it could in historic for sure. I also think that this card fits in modern blue white spirits really well because that deck has really wants another good one drop besides Mausoleum Wanderer, and that deck really wants a mana sink and a way to generate card advantage. So you don't like spe- Spectral Sailor? <laughs> no, I hate that card. That card sucks. <laughs> My man. And, and this and this card might be bad too. I think Spectral Sailor is terrible. Uh, I think this card's better. Um, and I don't think it's really, I mean, having a snow mana base is a cost, but in straight blue white, it's doable, especially because you get the new, you can play one of the tap lands and then play all basics or mostly basics. Um, and I, I would have to play with it, but every time I play spirits, I'm like, I want a mana sink and I want another good one drop because spectral sailor is so bad. One thing I would point out is that the mana sink that I remember from when I played blue white spirits sometimes was Moreland haunt, right? And it's like, Think about this compared to Moreland Haunt. Yeah, and this card plays poorly with that. Well, it, yeah, it pairs poorly with the Haunts because, uh, you know, you need all the snow mana. It doesn't make snow mana. But more just like the power of this is like you can pay it in installments. Moreland Haunt is fine. Like occasionally you are making like three, three tokens with it, which is pretty cool. But um, yeah, I could see trading this in for that basically and just saying like this is what i'm going to use excess mana when i have it it definitely happens in blue white spirits because you really don't have any way to draw cards it's not that which is why that deck adopted coco in the first place right so and spirits just got a big boon with skyclave apparition um so that's like a a big part of the reason why i'm I'm interested in it but I, i would just encourage you to try it out and see if it's good this is going to my spirit warrior deck my my double tribal it, with uh, with a uh, warden of the first tree, which is exactly. also a spirit warrior, I think, or is it just a warrior and then becomes a spirit warrior? I think I think it becomes a spirit warrior. Mm. We can something we can all aspire to. Stan, I do love your take of of trying this out <laughs> in mono blue tempo in historic as well. I gotta say, I think that seems like a perfect card to expand the power level of that deck. Some I cannot believe you remember that I actually became a, a human spirit warrior <laughs> tree ghost. All right, the next card on our list is Vega the Watcher, which is one blue-white for a 2-2 bird spirit with flying that says whenever you cast a spell from anywhere other than your hand, draw a card. You guys know I there's no text that I love more than draw a card, right? Especially whenever you cast a spell. Draw exactly. A card. Now, it has to be not from your hand. 
but there's lots of places that are not your hand depending on what format you like the best i just think this card is really sweet and full of possibilities uh i the main thing that hipped me to this was that i saw a player named jaron white tweeting about this it's a content creator that i follow on twitter i mentioned one combo in particular he saw this as part of the kethis combo engine for historic allows you to draw every card draw a card every time you play a card from your graveyard in particular you can do a lot of digging with diligent excavator and this and also of course mox amber does some wild stuff here too so if you have two mox ambers you get to draw your whole deck that's a lot of cards i i will say though that usually when you have kathis and two mox ambers i feel like you're usually winning anyways so to also have this three mana two two flyer in plays like maybe a little dicey but like as a one of I could see like it being a good like card to draw sometimes. I've never played Kethis Combo, but that deck is really powerful, and I feel like the pilots who play the deck probably can figure out if they want it, you know? Yeah, I think importantly, this is probably not a value card. Like it's like not something you like sneak in with Snapcaster mm-hmm. and like think, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have some fun and get some real value here. Like this is this is a this is a broken card or not a card, yeah, I think. Except in limited where this is your for- foretell payoff, basically, but that's awesome. Hey, Everett, do you like elves? I love elves. My first, uh, one of my first modern decks was a intruder alarm elves deck. I've been on the lookout for possibly playable elves in the set, and we might be alone in caring about elves, so I'm just going to fly through the two that jumped out to me. The first one was Skemfar Avenger, one in a black for the elf berserker. Whenever another non-token elf or berserker you control dies, you draw a card, and you lose one life, and it's a 3-1. So I, I thought this might be a nice way to recharge after sweepers and also puts you in a favorable position against removal decks if you have something like Elvish Archdruid out where your opponent is between like a rock and a hard place about what to remove because in so many other conditions, this is just a lightning rod. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a two mana lightning rod and I, I, I just, this, this one word, another non-token creature, I think is going to make this card not very playable. Um, the fact that when you kill it, you don't get to draw a card is a, a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And, um, it being a two mana, one toughness creature in a deck that's already really soft to removal, I don't, I, it might actually end up hurting you more than it ends up helping you. Um, especially, I, I'd love to be wrong and like maybe you can court of calling for it in response to a removal spell and draw a card or something. But I I don't have high hopes for the card. All right, let me throw one more at you. Jaspara Sentinel. Single green for an elf rogue reach. Springleaf elf. It's a one-two, and it has tap. Tap an untapped elf you control. Add one mana of any color. I remember this card being in standard, but a non-elf version. There, It was a spirit or something weird like that. that got, it's, it did see some play in like a Cryptolith right deck in standard. Uh, but the fact that you need another creature to make mana, I just, I just think it, uh, is not good. That second point of toughness is is really powerful, but, um, I, I don't think that this is going to see a lot of play. And I I say this based on the non-elf version that was printed in the past. That card just was never very powerful. If this card had haste, I could maybe see it. Cause like a spring leaf from, you can tap the the turn you play Mm -hmm. it like this, this doesn't really do much for you when when you cast it you have to untap with it so uh, i don't know don't you get just like worse versions but similar birchlore ranger vibes from it though as just 
another way to make your non-mana producing elves mana producing that's also not bad on turn one. I don't know. I, I think that this card is underpowered. I don't know. I, I've played. I, the thing is, I've, I've played with this card. You know, I've cast it many years ago. And the fact that it just doesn't make mana on its own, it just ma- makes it feel so medium. The terrible top deck. You know, um, I, I, I just, I, I really think that, I, I just don't know what format this fits into. Maybe standard in some lists. But as far as like elf tribal decks, as far as like, Decks that want to be ramping into things. I just don't think that this is a card you're that interested in. Were there any other new elves that you thought might have a might have a fighting chance? Uh, none that I saw. Um, yeah, I, I think that Skimfar Avenger probably has the best chance. Uh, but I I don't think that any of the elf cards that I saw are going to make a big impact in you know pioneer or modern elf tribal. In fact, I, in fact, I think the best card for Elf Tribal out of this set is actually Toski Bear of Secrets, the Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that card's kind of sick. Uh, I we haven't talked about it at all. Can we? Can I read it real quick for people? Yeah, sure. Toski Bear of Secrets, three colorless and a green for a one-one, and it says this spell can't be countered. It's indestructible. It attacks each turn if possible, but whenever a creature you control deals damage combat damage to a player you draw a card yeah i mean this this card whenever your elves still combat damage to a player you get to draw a card i i kind of feel like if oko wasn't legal this card would be super sick in legacy where it, it just never dies and you can't counter it and it's gonna be a, a card advantage engine that just runs away with the game uh but it just would turn into an elk in that format um but I, this card this card is super interesting to me i think that it will be a cyborg card out of green decks in older formats that are trying to look for a really resilient threat that can never be dealt with by a particular control strategy it is a problem that it gets aether gusted but I, I would be on the lookout for this card as like a cyborg option for green decks that is fascinating to me i think it's better in older formats where there's like where this this card is getting around cheap removal and generating value but in standard and historic and pioneer your opponent's just going to play up two two creatures. Right? Yeah, yeah. they're going to play creatures and block it. Yeah, but there are less creatures uh, in older formats. Yeah, if you're like, oh, I'm going to bring this in against a non-interactive deck or something that's like a blue-white control deck of some kind that I can just keep swinging through. I mean, it is t- like I I feel like there's enough euros in the later formats that it worries me a little bit. Like main deck, like I obviously wouldn't try it there, but if you can get around that, yeah, I th- I think that this will be mostly a sideboard card unless it is just super sick and then we can go crazy with it it's great art gotta say that too yeah all right stan you got another card here on the list you know i like cheap spells i think this one is interesting i'm curious to hear what you think bind the monster single you for an enchantment aura enchant creature when bind the monster enters the battlefield tap enchanted creature it deals damage to you equal to its power enchanted creature does not untap during its controllers and step all I keep suddenly hearing is like the uh, the Elmer Fudd kill the wabbit, but bind the monster, <laughs> bind the monster. Wow! If you just ever know. wanted people to know how old you and I are, Ancient. there it is. Ancient. Well, I was I was born before Chuck Jones. Is um, that from a TikTok or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's Vine before ah, your I time, see, I Spike. See. I think I heard about vines. Yeah, Stan, where where do you think this card lives? Because it's certainly got the right pr- the price is right. The price is right. I think this is like a good sideboard card for any deck with Death Shadow that can spend blue mana. I mean, this is an interesting call 
to me. Like I, when I read this card, I was definitely not like I was not going to see where you were going to go here. But the idea that you could potentially drop this on someone's primeval titan, which is a card that is it's kind of hard to deal with out of that deck. But on the other hand, you you run Aethergust to deal with primeval titan, which is huge. Also, yeah. Yeah, and Thoughtseize, well, Thoughtseize is one thing, but also, but Aethergust is really in there for the for the Titan matchups. Um, it's an interesting thing to be like, oh, I'm going to hit myself for six, and and then and then swing in with a huge Death Shadow, and because I got your blocker out of the way, um, it's tricky. I mean, I like the idea behind that. I, I don't know if it's better than Aethergust in the situations. And I'm not sure if there's enough other situations that that would play into that you would want to run it, but I think it's a cool idea. Um, where else do you think you might try this? I think Popper, it's going to be a Popper staple. Uh, not that I am super versed in that format, um, but I think this card's going to be great there. I mean, they've been printing cards like this forever, right? Blue enchantments. That yeah, this, this is the, this, I was thinking the same thing, but this is like yeah, two this, mana yeah, cheaper. This is, this is the best version of this we've ever seen. By a it, lot. It, it reminds me of Village Rights because they've been printing cards like Village Rights where you sack a creature and you generate some value at instant speed forever and none of those variants or none of bind the monsters variants have ever really been playable in uh constructed formats at least to my knowledge and bind the monster is like the first time i've looked at one of these effects and said i could i could maybe register this in a deck in a constructed deck and it, it you know blue is thirsty for removal spells and this is a good removal spell especially against cheap red creatures um and where you're only taking like one or two damage and you've dealt with it uh, if your deck is blue and light on removal. You mentioned village rights, but if anything, this reminded me a little bit more of Claim the Firstborn as like the cheapest. Yeah, that, that's, you know, that's, another, that's another really good example. Yeah. What, what an interesting observation, though, that we have Alter's Reap that suddenly went down to one mana. We have a conditional act of treason that suddenly went down to one mana. And now we have a conditional, um, you know, whatever this is called. This has been called a million different things over the years. Claustrophobia to whatever. Frost links effect. It feels like none of these effects have ever been good enough to have a card you know, be na- to be named after a card, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. This is a bind the monster effect. Yeah, it is. I Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I also see that you noted in here that this could have a shot in blue-white auras, Stan. I, I think it's possible too. You know, you're you are thirsty for white, uh, for low mana interaction generally in that deck because you often only get up to like three or four lands when you're playing that three, four, four ish, five ish lands. And when you want to go off, you have a lot of stuff you want to do. There's a lot of times you want to get a big blocker out of the way. You have lifelink threats, and so taking damage often doesn't matter. And you draw a card off of it if you have one of your payoffs out. And so I like that idea. This deck already runs Heliod's Punishment which is a good deck, a uh, good card in that deck because it gets rid of all the text on the card. So it depends on what else it can do. So since this one doesn't ever untap again, you, when you get, you get rid of tapped abilities, but if there's some kind of other static ability, this card would still do that. And so I think it could be a mix out of the sideboard or something like that, depending. I, I sort of see it like the cards that we've been mentioning, right? Where this is not a new path to exile. This is like a new village rights or a new claim or something like that, where it's like, I think some decks are going to want to play it like maybe like a blue tempo deck in like the underpowered formats or less powered formats than modern. Maybe a few modern decks are running this card. Like, like you said, Stan, like, you know, it, I can 
I can sideboard this in Grixis Death Shadow. I can take out your strong creature while losing life and accelerating the damage I'm beating down on with you. But it's not so ubiquitous and not so perfect in every sense that you're going to main deck it always, or it's not going to be a new format staple. And I think it's a perfectly fine place for a single mana spell to be in Magic. Here, here. All right, should we wrap this down with a couple of parting thoughts? Yeah, let's talk about this format or this this set a little bit, right? Like I think I think there's some underrated cards, some overrated cards maybe. I think let's I I'm want to hear your all thoughts in the end. Does this set suck or is this set okay? Or is it good? I don't know. I love it. Uh I'm a nerd for Norse mythology. Uh a ton of the cards make me look read them and say, "Wow." Yeah, it's definitely a weird set. Yeah. And and honestly, set feels balanced to me like nothing appears to be busted and that's a breath of fresh air i i i think this set is a big win from my point of view what about in terms of i guess when 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 i say does it suck i say i mean i kind of mean like is it not impacting the formats we play enough and i'm not saying that we want it to i'm just sort of saying like is this a is this a standard power level cool limited set maybe a few new role players or is it making like whole new decks that are exciting i would say it's more of the the former i in my opinion i think that there's probably 10 ish cards that will see some play in modern um and then it'll be a really good standard defining set um and that feels like a good spot to be but when you compare it to throne of eldrain when you compare it to Ikora, when you compare it to Theros, it's not going to be a set that just shakes up the dynamic of the older formats. And um, I don't think that's a bad thing, but it does suck in comparison to those sets, power level wise. Stan and, and Dave, what do you think? Like, is we've we've had so many sets of haymakers and and big impact and kind of immediate like this is going to slot into here type things. Is this kind of like a, a check on our expectations? Like, what do you think? I think it's good when new standard sets don't make big sweeping changes to old eternal formats over and over and over. And we were having a discussion in the Slack today where we were looking back on Zendikar and kind of acknowledging how impactful it really was in that it introduced Oopsaw spells. It introduced a handful of very powerful creatures that see play across a lot of other formats, especially Skyclave Apparition, Scourge of the Skyclaves comes to mind as well, even Cleansing Wildfire. And that was about as impactful as I feel comfortable because it didn't necessarily erase a whole storied history of other formats or break them per se, with the exception of Omnath perhaps. And I think this is even a tuned down version of that where to your point, like we had some role players, maybe we'll get some sideboard cards out of it, but if it only introduces one new deck because of Tybalt's Trickery or uh, what is it, Magdi, Bagdi? Oh, Bridgy. Bridgy. I, I guess yeah. I, what I'm seeing is a handful of cards that might be able to spawn a new deck if it's consistent enough or a whole bunch of just like small role players that will be fun new tools to sleeve up, but won't necessarily ruin anyone's day or make us clamor for bans anytime soon. All right, before we sign off, I want to hear everybody's card they're most excited to try out in the set. Everett, you can go first. What's your what's your card you're most uh, excited? I th- it can be something we already talked about. So it it can be or it, it can it, it can be. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I I think that I'm probably most excited for Bergy God of Storytelling. 
you know, it, uh, the one that the red god that makes mana or draw card or draws cards on the artifact side. Either that or the dwarf that you can sacrifice five treasures and put an artifact into play. Um, I'm I'm really excited for both of those, um, and I think they've got a lot of potential. Stan, this is hard for me, right? And I think if I had to choose two in no particular order, order, the first one is saw it coming because that feels like a stand card to try. Mm-hmm. Also, in search of greatness, I think is really cool. The green green enchantment, like that's the one that kind of makes me want to see it work even more so than the counter spell. Yeah, actually, I think in search of greatness is my card that I'm the most excited about right now to see what happens with green. it. Green. To see, I know, green. Weird for me. It feels awkward. But uh, I think it could be, I think it could be an interesting thing. What do you got, Shane? I, I have to, this, this is the set, the first set I think since we've been doing these episodes where I'm not really amped about anything. Like, I, I like the, I can't even remember the name of it, uh, but it's the, the three mana, four, four, turns into a land. Old growth troll. Yeah, the the troll is a card that I can see myself putting into decks and enjoying playing with, um, and that's about it. I mean, like, I mean, there's cards that I I know that I will play and I think are interesting and stuff like that. But the only card where I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm almost certain to play this card is probably that, and we'll see what else comes into play. I think Realm Walker is potentially cool. It's not it's not a totally novel effect however there's a lot of cards that do similar things like that but not exactly like it so realm walker is pretty cool mm-hmm. it's just i'm i'm fine with the set being what it is like i'm not going to hate on it for for not blowing my mind but you know it's just it's not anything i don't even have like a village rights like i did in uh, what was it like m21 or something yeah. or m20 where i was like this card rules it's so efficient it does novel things like it's it's going to be really cool i don't even have that really is it okay that I want this set to be unimpactful in modern specifically? Totally okay. I think it's fine. It, yeah. If it spawns significant change in historic or I guess pioneer, cool. But if modern stays mostly recognizable for the next three months, I kind of feel like that is a win because the format has been so dynamic almost to the point of being turbulent. I agree. I, I think that this set is going to be a win for most of Magic's formats. I, I mean, I, and then also ultimately, I am glad the the pathways are being completed because I think that I think they're awesome. Uh, I think that they will be impactful in in Pioneer if that becomes a thing that we can focus on uh, again. I think they're really good for Pioneer and Historic and Standard. All right, Everett. Uh, as usual, uh, we like to give you a little bit of a platform to promote. Uh, yourself as a content creator where can people uh, interact with you uh twitch twitter wherever what's what's your schedule i'm aspiring spike on uh on twitch and youtube and you you also find me on twitter on at, at aspiring spike but it's actually my name but my nickname is aspiring spike on there uh, i stream monday through friday from 9 a.m to 3 p.m central standard time uh this week's been a little weird because there's a bunch of ptqs so my schedule's been all over the place uh but i I usually try to stream for like those like 30 hours during the week and i try to do like one weekend tournament uh on saturday or sunday as well Uh, and then there's also uh daily updates uploads to youtube uh which is pretty cool so you can find stuff on there as well really daily uploads on youtube what have i been doing sleeping on youtube you i mean i think you are you are I think the best magic streamer 
uh, and that's not just saying that because you're you're on here, and I don't want to put anyone else down. I, I just think that you cultivate an awesome community. Uh, I think that you are a, a, a chill person to watch, and the community is really awesome as well. Like I said, I think that it's it's good people having a good conversation, and uh, I'm glad that you've been able to do it uh, full time for a while now and and succeed. We appreciate you, Everett. Keep up the good work. Yeah, I, I love being on. It's great. I'll always say yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep asking. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Thanks again, Everett. Everyone else, if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the three of us, Sans Everett, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. I suppose if you tag the dive down and Everett in the same tweet, maybe we can get into a little debate. Analog podcasting. You you could ask me any question through the dive down podcast. I'd really like to set up that dynamic. Just messes Stan or Dave or Shane and We're we're really like his secretary. Yeah. So we'll take that we'll that take it a, for a him good, and we'll, uh, we'll route a good it. Dynamic to set up. So spoken like someone who's tired of the fan mail. <laughs> If you're out there and you'd like to support our show, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can also support the show while playing Magic through a couple of ways. One is Mana Traders. If you sign up for Mana Traders with promo code the dive down, you get 15% off your first three months of a Magic online rental subscription. Also, you can support us if you're an arena player by downloading the Untapped Companion app over at untapped.thedivedown.com. With Untapped, you can support us without paying one red cent. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and aspire to be a spy!